welcome to Pivot Points. This is the podcast about the pivotal moments that have shaped our academic, professional and personal lives. I'm Femke, your Head of Communications at Wolfson College, and I'm all about creating ways for you to share your stories like this podcast. Okay, so I feel like I should preface this episode by saying that we're, that we're sitting in, in the piano room, actually, and not the usual media room where these are recorded. So it's a little bit of a, of a makeshift setting. Um, but thank you, Natasha, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. So I know you as somebody, granted I haven't known you for very long, but we've got to know each other a little bit over the last few weeks or so. And you're someone who, as many people in our community, has moved around a lot. Country-wise, you've also moved in and out of uh, kind of private sector education and research. So there's a certain kind of fluidity to your life. So I think as a starting point, um, how do you feel? How do you feel that has been part of your life, and what is your experience of fluidity and kind of moving in and out of these spaces? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think on a on a personal level, I feel like it's it's been hugely expansive. I mean, I think the ability to be able to move to a different country, to not feel scared about, for example, moving to a different country, to know how to hit the ground running, takes away a lot of fear about the need to move around or the need that to, the need to move for a relationship or for a job or whatever. I think also being a young academic researcher, um, you're you're constantly on short-term contracts. Mm. You're constantly unsure whether you're going to have a job the next year. Things feel very precarious. I mean, I think we call it this kind of academic moment, but my understanding is that this academic moment has lasted quite a long time mm. and is going to last <laughs> for quite a long time. I, I mean, these, these kind of fantastical permanent jobs are, you know, always in the future. Um, and so in that sense, having that fluidity of being able to do academic work, but then also to be able to do consultancy work or journalist work, journalism work, um, it's a bit of a security net for me, I think. Mm. Um, it means that if I don't get the next academic role or if the next academic role requires me to move somewhere where it isn't convenient, for example, I'm not going to kind of fall off the edge. Mm. <laughs> and there, there are other options. Mm. And I find that to be hugely empowering, not to have all my eggs in one basket, be that all my eggs in the basket of living in the UK or all my eggs in the basket of academia. Yeah. And do you think do you think that's something that you have learned to be comfortable with or is it something that's just been part of your DNA because coming on to your first pivot point you moved to China when you were 18. Yeah. So how how much of that is part of your identity versus how much of it have you learned to embrace? I think so my mom is Indian um, but she was born in the Republic of Ireland and my dad is English and me and my brother were born up in North me and my brother were brought up in Northern Ireland so I think being a multicultural mixed race you know not necessarily fitting in or phenotypically looking like we fit into the place where we grew up mm. means that I think there's an element in which it was kind of in my DNA that mm that you're always a little bit one foot in, one foot out. Mm. Um, and certainly, I think, coming from a family that really embraced um, multiculturalism, really embraced the idea of, um, 
you know, of abolishing any kind of racial prejudice. You know, my parents were very much involved in the peace process in Northern Ireland, um, kind of intercommunity work. So there was certainly a, 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 an idea that we should, that it's desirable to constantly be stepping outside of mm. our communities. Um, so yes, as you said, when I was 18, I moved to China for uh, a gap year, which turned into maybe a little bit more of a gap year. <laughs> um, so I, I moved to Linfen in Shanxi, which is a, a small city by Chinese standards in the middle of China. Um, and I went there to work first for an NGO, um, an educational NGO, and then I was learning, studying Mandarin and teaching English at the university there. And that was uh, really life-changing. I mean, I think as many 18-year-olds find when they leave home for the first time, I think it it really just opened up this whole new possibility of what life could be. I think growing up in rural Northern Ireland, there was a sense of uh, you finish school, you go to university, you get married, you have a job, you make mm -hmm. babies, you know, and, and you could kind of see your whole life just right in front of you. Mm. Whereas moving to China and you think, gosh, there's so many different ways in which people live. Mm. <laughs> um, and as I said before, I think it really removed the fear of um, of embracing those differences of embracing. Yeah. Um, you know, of, of, of being able to move and hit the ground running and not yeah. feel like you have to live in the place that you were born. Yeah. Um, and how do you feel about the question of where are you from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is really controversial. I mean, some people really dislike the question mm. of where are you from, mm. um, and some people find it, to, you know, considered to be a microaggression or mm. even racist. I actually love the question of where mm. I'm from. It's it's often a very long answer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I I embrace that. I think it's funny actually. When I was younger, I had these huge angsts about where I was from really and where did mm. I really belong and would I ever find a home and now I just maybe just being in my 30s feeling a little bit more secure just embrace the ambiguity yes yeah <laughs> um so when people ask where am I from I say um my mom is Indian and my dad is English but I was born and brought up in in Northern Ireland mm, and just present the facts. <laughs> yeah, and I'm married to a South African, and so mm. we kind of spend equal time between South Africa and the UK, yeah. and uh, yeah, lean into the <laughs> lean into the complexity. Yeah, I think that's a good approach. And how do you feel being in the UK? How does that feel to you? Does it feel like home? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, I think one of the quirks about being born in Northern Ireland is that you're you have both an Irish and a British passport. Mm. Um, when I was younger, I only had an Irish passport, and then as an adult, I I applied and got a British passport. And it was the first time having a British passport meant and living in England. It was the first time that I had lived in the country where I also held nationality. Mm. Um, and it feels so great. It's so nice mm. having you know, ha making it easy to set up a bank account and understanding how things work. I mean, mm. I, yeah, I, I feel very at home in the UK. Yeah. And you mentioned before that you're married to a South African. How yes. did you meet him? I met him at Oxford. At Oxford? <laughs> Interesting. Yes. Same course, same college? Same course, or? same okay. course, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we both did a master's in comparative and international education here at mm -hmm. the Department of Education. Um, there was only 18 people in the class. Mm. Um, there were only three boys. Mm -hmm. I got one of them. <laughs> um, and yeah, we actually only started dating um, at the end of our master's. And then 
um, he needed to go back to South Africa as a kind of terms and conditions of his scholarship. Um, and so I followed him. Mm. And I remember you once saying to me that you felt like moving to South Africa for a boy kind of made you question what that means to you as yes. a feminist. I want to dig into that. So <laughs> okay. how, how, how does that feel? How does it shape that for you? What, like, what was yeah. the thought process in your head at the time? Yeah, it's interesting. My husband's called David. Um, I, I, I felt quite, you know, at the beginning of the re- relationship, I really felt like this was exactly who I was looking for in a life partner. Um, and so, yes, as I said, he needed to be in South Africa. And so I decided to spend increasing amounts of time visiting him in South Africa. So I would, uh, I would be there for three, four months at a time. We had a shared supervisor in common mm. who was very encouraging and supportive of our relationship mm-hmm. and who gave me some work uh, that I was able to do while in South Africa. Oh, wow. um, and so he kind of really helped that helped my relationship with David um, mm. develop. But yeah, it was extremely hard. I mean, as, as I've said, I, I've moved to lots of different countries. Mm. I'm not afraid of being an outsider, but somehow it was different being an outsider and a plus one Mm. to an insider Um, and certainly I had never seen myself as this woman that just follows around a man Mm. (laughs) Um, and so to find myself actually you know in quite a vulnerable position where my entire social circle was through my then partner's social circle Mm. um, and and not being particularly financially stable mm. was a bit of a shock to the system and quite a shock to my self-identity. Mm, I can imagine. Um, and, and definitely, yeah, it, it tested us in, in, you know, in really good ways, mm. I think. I mean, it was, um, it was really reassuring to see how, uh, how David supported me through that. Mm-hmm. But also, I think it required me to grow up quite a lot and to um to figure out who I am and what I want to be so that mm. I can so that I could hold my own in a space that was primarily his yeah um and then of course I I designed my PhD study so that I could specialize in South African education mm. um and that 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 was actually quite a turning point in a sense of really becoming an expert in an aspect of South African society mm. that gave me credibility on my own terms in that space. Mm. Can you explain to us in somewhat layman's terms for people who are not experts in your, in your subject area, how, like, how much of a change was it from what you were originally researching to what you ended up researching? Was there, was there a big change like to make it adapt to where you were living and where you were? Um, it wasn't... I think prior to that, I, I was obviously, I was working in education. I had done a master's in education. Mm. I was interested in education in low-income countries. Um, but previous to that, I had been working mostly on issues of teacher education. Mm. And so, although this wasn't a radical move, it, it, it certainly did require a little bit of thought, and, and it was quite conscious. So mm. my, um, my work 
what became the basis of my PhD and, and what I've, you know, the kind of the topic that I've really fallen in love with and have developed through my postdoc is looking at history education in societies that have experienced conflict or particularly racialized injustice. Mm. So I was looking at how apartheid was taught in South African schools and South African history in mm. South African history classrooms. But in particular, I wasn't necessarily interested in the the quote-unquote historical facts of what were taught in yes. the classroom. I was interested in how teachers and students connected the past and the present. So did did teachers and students use the past to explain contemporary South African society? Mm. And in what ways did they use the past? Mm -hmm. So, for example, some teachers would explain contemporary society as being um, an entire consequence of the apartheid uh, era. Mm. So the the spatial spatialized nature of the city um the race relations poverty everything was a consequence of apartheid mm. whereas some teachers would really avoid that narrative and try to to persuade students that nothing about contemporary society was a consequence of apartheid that apartheid had finished almost 30 years ago mm. and really there was nothing left of apartheid in contemporary south african society mm. Um, and so obviously the way in which you use the past to explain the present then has um, quite pertinent implications for things such as land redistribution, reparations, mm. affirmative action, a lot of the hot political topics that mm. are currently being debated in South African politics. So mm. I was interested in how, how teachers use that. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it, 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 was, it was an excellent move. It was an mm. excellent transition. This is certainly a field where perhaps also coming from Northern Ireland, uh, I really resonate with mm. but but it was very much designed my PhD project was very much designed in order that I could spend more time in South Africa mm. and then I'm also kind of wondering then were there any particular biases that you had to consider so thinking about the fact that your you know your personal choices are then impacting your academic research what do you need to consider to make sure it is true research yeah that's interesting um in some ways I would say that my, my research is mostly ethnographic. I, my background is in anthropology. Mm. So we think about and are very explicit about our positionalities mm. when it comes to research anyway. Yes. Um, in some ways, the fact that I was married to a South African was very um, beneficial for my research. I think being mixed race, Indian and, and Caucasian... Um, but not being South African kind mm. of allowed me to step outside of the situation. And I think teachers felt quite comfortable. Teachers and students felt quite comfortable to explain things to me as though I was an outsider. And that's mm. obviously that's really gold for a researcher because yes, you want people so to useful. kind of explain things from first principles mm. um, and also not not being necessarily classified as as white or not white mm. was very helpful in terms of managing again that ambiguity but then being married to a South African connected me to the country yes. and teachers and students could see that I was invested in this country mm. and that I wasn't just somebody who had flown in for a year of field work mm. that this was a place where um, you know where, where I was going to be spending significant mm. parts of my life mm. um, and so it I gave you more time it gave me more time and I think mm. I think it also um I think both for my participants and for me kind of made the research feel a lot more personal and also, yeah, just invested, I think. Mm. And now, as far as I understand, you're kind of back and forth between here and South Africa. Yes. So what does that look like on a personal level and on a kind of academic professional level? 
So my research has kind of developed somewhat to not only looking at how teachers and students think about how apartheid is taught in South Africa, but also about how teachers and students think about how British colonialism is taught in England. Mm. Um, and so it's a really nice comparative study. Yeah, in some ways, I think South Africa has been much more honest about its difficult past mm. and has tried with more or less success to confront it head on, particularly mm. within the education system. Whereas um, England, as I'm sure you know, is kind of coming a little bit late to the game yes. of acknowledging colonial violence mm. and, um, and how that has shaped mm -hmm. both this country and the world. Yeah. So in terms, practically, um, it, it just, it simply means that I'm often doing fieldwork in both contexts. Mm. Um, and so I'm often traveling between the two contexts, or at the very least, uh, I'm, I'm in correspondence with teachers and students in both contexts. Mm. Um, what I'm really excited about is trying to bridge that gap so that teachers are in South Africa are speaking to teachers in England. Mm, um, that's interesting. I think both have a lot to offer the other. I mean, I think uh, English teachers obviously have many more resources mm. and many more opportunities for continual professional development and training. Whereas I said as I said before, I think South African teachers are really becoming experts in how to deal with the difficult past mm. and have a lot of experience in learning how to manage those controversial questions that arise when you're teaching mixed race classrooms or mm. teaching students who whose personal lives are very implicated in the history. Yeah. And on a personal level, is it fun traveling back and forth? Is it exhausting? Um, is it what you want to be doing? That's a good question. I, I, I did really love the COVID period where we could yeah. just be in one place. Yeah, and that really is one get, good thing, I think, yeah. to have that whole experience. Exactly, like plant some vegetables, get to know our Absolutely. neighbors, invest. Read as many books as possible. Exactly. Um, I mean, to, and you've been living in Oxford. We've been, yeah, been living in Oxford yeah. uh, during, during for, for most of the pandemic yeah. um, and, and subsequently. Um, it's... It's been fine. I mean, it, it is, I think both places feel very much like home. So mm. it's not like moving from a place that you don't know to a place that you don't know. Yes. Um, you know, you, you land and, and you feel like, oh, yeah, this is my other home. Yeah, um, that's nice. Yeah, that's exactly. Nice. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a very interesting topic, especially in this community, because we have so many people who are literally just on that brink of making choices between uh, you know, do I do I move here for this professional or academic reason? Do I move here because this is someone I want to include in my life? Like, yes. those are such pivotal decisions and, like, they're impossible to untangle from each other. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I've been very fortunate in, in making it work. But one of the things that my husband and I would always say to each other when we were, you know, at the beginning wondering, can and we make this... And you're both academics. Yes, so, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Can, you know, can, can we make this work? Is this, you know, will one of us need to make this massive sacrifice mm. in order to be together? You know, right at the beginning, That's is this relationship challenging worth decision, it? Yeah. You know, and I guess what we kind of felt is that if we can't make it work, then nobody can make it work. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. Oxford, you know, it does have an elite reputation. Mm -hmm. It does open doors. Mm. Um, you know, that there are, you know, there are kind of opportunities that, that have sprung up when we've looked for them. Mm. Um, and so I think, I think we've been, we've been very lucky. We're both, you know, touch wood in good health. We have mm -hmm. family that's in good health. Mm. Um, all, any of these things could change in a moment and then 
the life plan would need to readjust. Yes. Um, but but for the most part, yes, we, we have been able to make it work quite yeah. successfully. Good. Moving on to your third pivot point, the first time you were paid to write. Yes. When, when was that? And what did they pay you to write? Quite the recently. <laughs> Because that's exciting. That's like the dream, right? Getting paid to yeah, write something. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, of course, in some ways you could say that, well, all academics are paid to write yes. because, you know, we're, we we have a contract and that contract requires us to publish. Um, yeah, well, when you sent me this pivot point, I was imagining like your very, very, very first, I don't know, piece of academic work or something that you no. thought was a direct payment or... No, it w- so it was, um, it was actually quite recently. It was within the last... Uh, year mm. and it was for Quartz Africa. Okay. Um, but but subsequently, I've done more kind of paid journalism or paid mm. writing work, and the the piece was on um, some research that we had been doing about African students in China, and it seemed like something that had a lot of contemporary value or contemporary relevance, and so I pitched it and they accepted it, and that what they paid was you know, it was not, not a huge amount, certainly mm-hmm. not enough to live on. Mm-hmm. But it was really, um, it was really empowering. Mm. Um, I was, you know, I was surprised how, um, yeah, just how it, how, how valued it made me feel. Mm. And I, I think it made me reflect a lot on my academic work that, you know, on the one hand, everybody kind of at this college is at Oxford and is very elite and, you know, whatnot. But at the same time, as I said, academic jobs are very precarious. And so you're often kind of fighting and grasping to try to to get a publication mm. or to get a contract or whatever. Yes, yeah, super competitive. Very competitive. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it sometimes can make you feel quite undervalued. Mm. So, you know, you feel like you have all of this experience and... It shouldn't be this hard to to get it out into mm. the world or this research or this data or whatever. Yeah. And so having having somebody um, first it was Quartz Africa, then Chalkbeat Tennessee, which is an educational magazine in the US, they actually approached me to ask me if I would write something for them. And that was oh, another wonderful. I know that was another level of oh my You're gosh. Like, I've made it. <laughs> I made <laughs> this it. is me. <laughs> yeah, just having having somebody who thinks that what you're doing is you know, is interesting enough mm. to really seek it out. Um, yeah, to as approach I say, you. It's a huge compliment. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and as I say, I, I mean, I absolutely love academia. It's, mm. it's such a privilege to be here, and I, I really, really enjoy my work. But it is very insecure, very precarious, yes. and, and that does sometimes start to feed into your self-identity, you know, mm. as somebody that... Um, maybe doesn't have anything to say or maybe isn't doing work that's valuable and so yeah well on on that note of like job security then so you did used to work in private sector right it, yes well so i i previously have been have done consultancy yes. for oxford policy management oh, yes okay mm-hmm. um and so that again was educational consultancy I, actually for for a range of organizations the the main organization i've worked for is oxford policy management mm. and so they they are a for-profit company that often work with non-profit organizations Mm. so for example a lot of the clients would be UNICEF or UNESCO Mm. or the World Bank or Mm. you know these kind of large education development agencies Mm. that uh, that need a specific piece of research Mm -hmm. and how I guess you were doing that independent of academic work at the time so then how did you find that shift coming back in was it did you notice the the kind of scarcity and precariousness of that move immediately 
Or were you kind of taken away by like a romantic academia <laughs> idea? That's an interesting question. I mean, academia is wonderful because you can pursue questions that aren't immediately relevant. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's such a freeing thing to do. Yes. Yeah. And there's a lot of creativity, which yes. I really love. The Department of Education here is just wonderful. Mm. I mean, it's, it's very um, collaborative and collegial and it's really like the best feeling in the world to be able to bounce around ideas, yes. you know, and, and the college system in Oxford makes that possible. Yeah. But, you know, the salaries aren't amazing and, mm. you know, next year I might not have a job. So, yeah. so, so there's <laughs> swings around. Swings around. <laughs> Whereas I think when, when you're doing consultancy work, it's exciting to be working with people who are really making decisions, mm. um, you know, working very closely with government. Um, it's exciting to be paid so much. Mm. Um, but, but there's not a huge amount of creativity in it. Yes. You know, often the client knows what they want mm. and you're there to to deliver the best version of yes. that. Yeah. But you don't get to set the terms. Mm. It's not it's never your project. Yes. Um, somebody else has a vision. Yes. So, um, you know, having having kind of two strings to my bow mm. is 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 nice. I mean, if I if I only had to pick one, it would definitely be academia. I mean, I love I love the kind of the time and the space to think mm. and to write. Um, what advice would you give to anyone who's on the brink of that decision? Like, do I continue with academia or do I go into industry? Hmm. First, see if you can do both. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's it's often, you know, often these consultancy firms hire academics and, hmm. and that's very, if your academic contract allows that, that's very possible. Hmm. Um, and that, that really is the dream. Yeah. Um, I think... I think it, it obviously depends on your kind of material circumstances, like how much, and, and I think your emotional circumstances, like how much uncertainty um, and precarity can you take? Yes. Um, you know, I think some people just have a much greater appetite mm. for precarity and they really don't mind moving cities every year and they mm. really don't mind not knowing whether they will have a paycheck next mm. year. Um, and and if that is for you, then then and you can overcome the first five or six years of early academic mm. employment. Then then I think that's great. Um, whereas I think if you're if you're much more interested in um, if you're less interested in ideas, but more interested in how decisions get made, mm. then I do think consultancy or industry is is a really good place to be. Yeah, and and they are actually quite transferable. Yes. you know they're they're not. I think there is a myth that if you go down an academic kind of track, then you're so in the weeds that nobody's ever actually that interested in what you've got to say yeah, outside like of... way too far. You go way <laughs> yeah. too, way into the weeds <laughs> that nobody outside is yeah. actually that interested. And, and that's absolutely not true. Mm. Um, you that's know, reassuring. It's re yeah, yeah it, it was reassuring for me also yes. that like people are interested in your PhD, even yes. if they're not, even if they're not about to use the skills that your PhD mm. developed. Yeah. And do you think you'll continue with this balance of journalism and teaching? Um, so yes, at the moment I'm just doing as a postdoc. I'm just doing research. Okay, at you're the not department. teaching. I'm not now. teaching okay. this year. No, I yeah. was teaching last year. Yeah. Um, I I hope so. I mean, I, I I really hope that they can feed into each other. And I mean, the the, the journalism um, is really at such a, a baby baby stage, mm. <laughs> where I'm still learning. I think how to write for non academic audiences. I'm still really seeking out mentorship in that regard. Um, and certainly what I write about for public audiences is entirely informed by the research that I'm doing. Mm. And so, you know, I think as an anthropologist, you're just constantly meeting and interviewing 
really interesting people mm. um, who are often overlooked. Uh, for example, history teachers mm. or, for example, African students who are doing PhDs in China. Mm. Um, and, and so being able to bring their stories to a wider audience and being able to kind of help to nuance debate with those with those kind of quite intimate stories mm. is something that I really, um, really excites me. But the two are absolutely linked. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, um, I, I, everything that I'm writing about is coming from the academic data. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And what do you feel is next for you in life? <laughs> That's a really good question. Uh, well, my contract ends in March, which mm-hmm. is maybe why I'm speaking so much about yeah. precarity. <laughs> maybe yeah. why it's on the top, of my, the top of my mind. Yeah. Yes. Um, and yeah, I'm applying for I'm applying for a range of things. Mm. Um, it's nice, as I said before, to have consultancy experience because I know, you know, if if this if these academic applications don't work out, there is a job for me. Yes. elsewhere yeah. and that do you think that also like frees up your mind in a way to to explore the things you're exploring in academia if you know you have oh. a little bit of security elsewhere that's a really good point I, I think probably yes I mean um, I'm thinking like imaginatively you know like what does it do to your imagination I was, so actually it's interesting you say imagination what I was more thinking about is in terms of impact mm. projects so for example I'm assessed you know, largely on my publications and mm. book coming out and, you know, journal articles and things like this. But but the work that I do working with teachers, working with students, um, obviously has a big kind of community impact on the history teaching community mm. if, I, if I wanted to turn it into that kind of impact. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I've been spending a lot of time doing this year, for example, are creating podcasts and learning resources for teachers, helping them to think about how to teach controversial history. Mm-hmm. I'm developing a walking tour of the anti-apartheid movement in London, mm-hmm. which would be used as a learning tool for teachers who want to teach about histories of anti-racism, for yeah. example. Um, developing workshops for teacher trainees, PTCE history teachers, um, again, on how to teach about the legacies of empire and how to manage those difficult conversations in the classroom and none of these are traditional academic outputs but I I get a lot of meaning from them and I think I think you know deep down I just think that's where academia works best Mm. you know like the research that I produce the data that I produce the insights that I produce should be turned into things that teachers can use I feel really passionate about that Mm. um and if I was desperately worried about getting the next academic job, mm. I don't think that would be something that mm. I would be focusing on. Yes. Um, and so in that sense, it's freeing. And yes. it's it's creative because, well, as you know, developing podcasts are creative. Yeah. You know, um, developing learning learning resources are creative. Yeah. Um, but what's next? I, I, yeah, as I say, I've, I've applied for several things. Um, teaching positions, uh, fellowships, um, I've, I've even applied to actually teach history at mm. a secondary school oh, as amazing. well, um, which I think... In Oxford or where? In Johannesburg. Oh, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, I'm, I'm kind of casting the net quite wide mm. and sometimes I go through periods of existential angst, but today you've mm. caught me on quite a hopeful, excited day. Perfect. <laughs> That's ideal. 
Maybe we should do this again on another day. Oh, you like maybe not. <laughs> well, I'm sure that's probably a very relatable feeling to a lot of people. I'm sure it is. <laughs> we all go through periods of, yay, everything's great, and on track versus, no, what am I yes. doing? <laughs> Leaning into the insecurity yeah. versus, I just want to have yeah. a home. <laughs> oh, definitely. Well, I think that's a perfect note to end on. Let's end on that, that nice positive note of, yes, yes we, can, we can do the things that we're trying to do. <laughs> That's great. Thank you, Natasha, for coming on. Oh, thank you so much.